Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. R.E.M., were one of the truly iconic bands of the 1980s and 1990s. In the 1980s, they were the definitive American indie alternative band that, alongside more hardcore outfits like Black Flag and Husker Du, blazed a trail along the network of independent venues that defined the rock underground at the time. They were direct musical influence and ideological inspiration for many, and I mean many, of the generation-defining and epochal bands of the 1990s. In the 1990s, R.E.M. built on the unexpected hit singles they had in the late 1980s and became superstars. They were a ubiquitous presence on rock radio and MTV. They had sold-out arena tours all over the world, And they were among the most respected and admired elder statesmen rock music ever produced. By the 2000s, the hits really stopped coming for R.E.M., but they chugged on as a legacy act until their breakup in 2011. Yet, a very curious and honestly discouraging thing has happened since then that really got started at the end of the 1990s. As an expat who lives here in South Korea, I can tell you that most if not all of the other fellow expats that I hang out with here are either millennial generation or Gen Z people. I can also tell you it seems that most younger generation rock music fans, particularly millennials and Gen Z people, have either completely forgotten them or just about outright dislike them. You even get this through social media and platforms such as YouTube and and the such. The hipster douchebag dickheads behind the revoltingly obnoxious podcast Your Favorite Band Sucks once devoted an entire episode to how much they hate R.E.M. In addition to showing bad musical taste, which those idiots demonstrate on a regular basis, that vitriol reflects a broader issue. Why is it that R.E.M., A band that got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2006, their first year of eligibility, and is generally regarded as one of the 10 or 20 greatest American bands of all time. Why is it that they are so lightly regarded by the aforementioned millennials and Gen Z music fans? Is Shiny Happy People, which is by far the worst of their hit songs, is it that bad of a song that it overwhelms their otherwise rich, eclectic, and dense discography? Were they overexposed in their day? Was their music in the 2000s so bad that it canceled the brilliance of the previous two decades? Or are there other and more nefarious culture war-related reasons at work here, hmm? 
U2, The Cure, Depeche Mode, The Pixies. These are all 1980s bands that are more revered by millennials and Gen Zers than R.E.M. And that really isn't fair at all. After all, if you're a millennial or a Gen Zer who loves Nirvana and Radiohead, two of the four and biggest and best bands of the 1990s, Pearl Jam and Oasis being the other two, why wouldn't you like R.E.M.? Members of Nirvana and Radiohead and Pearl Jam throughout the years have gone at length in interviews gushing about both the musical and ideological influence and impact R.E.M. had on them. Both of yours truly curmudgeons are unabashed R.E.M. fans who count them as a seminal band of our youth and lifetime. This particular curmudgeon counts them as perhaps his all-time favorite band. So, in this episode, we will first investigate why R.E.M.'s popularity and seemingly timeless quality plummeted so much in the past 20 plus years. And then we'll take the very detailed, make the very detailed case as to why they should be remembered more fondly and should be held in the same regard as other iconic all-time great American bands such as the Beach Boys, the Velvet Underground, Creedence Clearwater Revival, the Stooges, and yes, Nirvana. Renowned British music journalist and REM biographer Tony Fletcher will be a very special guest in this very personal and very passionate episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report as we bring you R.E.M. Remember those guys? So Arturo, before we uh, get into our uh, uh, fantastic interview with uh, Tony Fletcher, the author of uh, Perfect Circle, uh, a biography of R.E.M., uh, we should address one thing. Uh, R.I.P. Andy Rourke of the Smiths, who is oh. uh, who, who was a friend of, of, of Tony's. Uh, so it's a cause to remember the Smiths a little bit. Yeah. I mean, Rourke, Rourke, the rhythm section of the Smiths was always very underrated. Uh, and they got better as the years went on. By the time sure. of the Queen is Dead in 1986, which I think is a perfect album, um, yeah. they, they were one of the best rhythm sections in all of rock. Uh, they were rock steady. Um, the Smiths had this reputation, at least I don't, uh, among their detractors, for being a little too twee. But yeah. uh, if they you were pretty listen, twee, but they were muscular. They were, they were muscular. Yeah. No, yeah. And, they were and, muscularly and, twee. Yeah. Or twee muscular. Um, but uh, <laughs> if you. Uh, but if, if 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 you check out some of the live stuff on on, on YouTube, I mean, they 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 rocked and they rocked live, uh, and they they always sounded a little different live than they did in the studio. And, Thank goodness. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the reason for that is because they had, they they had, those guys were good musicians. They could play. You know, Joyce was a really solid drummer. Mar was a brilliant guitar player. You know, they were they were a great band, man. Uh, technically a good band. I've never been a huge fan, and that has mostly to do with Morrissey. Uh, I just have a distaste for Morrissey, but I'll tell you, there's still a place, uh, where, uh, the Smiths are really heavily revered. Uh, you know where that place is already? Where is that? That is in the parallel universe. Uh Uh, Yes. Yes, folks. We are crossing over into the other side of the space time continuum as we are wont to do on uh, every episode of the curmudgeon rock report, uh, over there, uh, green is blue and, Black is white, and rock and roll is still the music of choice 
among the kids, among the middle-aged folks, among the boomers. Uh, it is still, rock still rocks and people still care, uh, hugely. Uh, although, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, apparently, people still care about REM a little bit more than uh, than we think. Just a little bit, though. And so, <laughs> at least that was endearing. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, so folks, this is our segment where we cover newish or new albums uh, that we think uh, deserve uh, some attention. And we each uh, do a pick each, uh, on uh, every episode. So, uh, Arturo, uh, who are you uh, giving love to here in the parallel universe on this episode? Yes, uh, it's Acid Arab and their album Trois, which is the French word for three. Uh, I admit this is a bit of cheating on my part since this album isn't really rock in any sense. However, it is a fun, funky, danceable as shit record that I think deserves some props and attention. Acid Arab are a DJ duo from Algeria. And as the album title suggests, this is their third album. They expertly meld electronic dance music in its various forms, mostly techno, a little bit of house here, a little bit of dubstep there, to traditional North African dance and pop music, the kind of which you would hear in Algeria, Morocco, and Egypt. The, what you get here also, um, because this is you know North African, you get the, the twisty, bending vocal melodies that are a hallmark of the music of the latter, uh, of that region of the world, with the driving rhythms of the former, the EDM, to create this intoxicating blend that can be best described as sexy elasticity or <laughs> elastic sexiness. Whichever there you, you prefer. Uh, choice cuts and uh, the slightly psychedelic done done, the four on the floor disco stomp of Yamahla, uh, the head shaking killer groove of a uh, Habaitak, and the delectable acid house Arabic pop fusion of Acid Chawi. Uh, this is a great record to shake your ass to while you're eating your falafel with hummus. <laughs> okay. Uh... I'll just put it this way. I think I'd rather listen to my elastic waistband than uh, than listen to this album and this <laughs> band. Uh, Ass Arab. Uh, not not a huge fan of this record. Uh, I, I do like traditional North African folk music, but I like it straight. I think putting the fuzzy reverb and the house drums on it just strikes me as corny as shit. And it gets to the point where it's a little too amped up and... I don't know. Obviously, their their fans are. Uh, I suspect that Daft Punk might be heroes in their world because of the uh, their drum programming and their uh, aesthetic. If you remove the 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 folk music, is very close to what Daft Punk did way 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 back uh, two plus yeah. decades ago. So I don't know. I'm just not that enthused by it. And if I want to listen to that kind of stuff. I'll stick to uh, I'll stick to what was it called? Like the rough trade guide to world music, uh, <laughs> which yeah. is an insulting term. Anything that's not Western, it's world music. Dude, to the people yeah. of those countries, rock and roll is world music. Oh, no shit. No shit. I know that. But what I'm saying is, is there's I, I like my world music a whole lot less housey. And <laughs> I don't want I don't want dan dancey Arabic folk. Uh, I really don't. So, I do. 
Okay, well, we we gotta have we gotta you gotta have some 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 amalgams. It's nice to have. It's nice to be yeah. cheerful and and dance and you know. I mean, some of these uh, yeah. some some of the people in some of these countries, you know, they don't you know they they, they some of these countries are pretty poor. Let them dance. Let them yeah, dance. Yeah, I know. Let them dance. But frankly, some of this shit reminds me when you and I lived in Astoria, you know, a hundred years ago, and it just reminds me of all those like musky looking dudes and like black V neck t shirts that. Hey, th- those were some sexy, sexy men. I tell you oh, right now. Oh, would you stop? They have nothing on Michael Hutchins, man. Okay. Anyway, so uh, so my record, uh, it's an album that, in some ways, could is so polarizing it might polarize itself. <laughs> uh, uh, this is an album, one of those albums. There's a grand tradition in rock and roll of an album that you can call a three star record. That forty percent of it is garbage, but the other forty to sixty percent of it is good enough that two decades later, like out in the future, you still find yourself coming back to at least that portion of the record. Uh, an example for me would be Cake's Fashion Nugget. It's that kind of record where Fashion Nugget is one of these records that most of it is kind of dregs, but there's like four or five songs on it that I love, uh, especially the title track. Uh, Shut the fuck up. Yeah, uh, you know, good stuff. But so this is one of those kinds of records. Uh, this is an album by a band from North Carolina named Wednesday. And the name of the album is Rat Saw Got. Uh, this is an interesting band. Uh, one of the uh, albums from last year that I liked the most. It was on number 20 on my year end list, but is still but now has risen to be in my top five from last year's MJ Letterman's Boat Songs. Well, MJ Letterman is in another band. <clears throat> They're based in Asheville, uh, called Wednesday, and uh, he's not the front person on this. He's a co-songwriter and a guitarist, but this is a uh, forum for a young woman named Carly Hartsman, and uh, Miss Hartsman is either she's darkly funny or just dark, uh, because this is an in- this is a really really interesting record in the sense that her theme is it's a nostalgia. But it's not a good kind of nostalgia. It's the, I'm now in my early 20s, and there were some fun times, and there were some remembrances, and now I'm lonely. But wasn't it cool when we had that party where uh, one of us uh, OD'd on Benadryl? Or you remember when the neighbors got busted for cocaine trafficking? And she also has fascination with uh, death scenes and yellow... uh, uh, police tape and this kind of stuff. And so you would think that that's kind of morbid, but in some ways it's kind of fun. And when they get it right, it is really, really strong. I mean, there are pretty much from the fourth uh, song uh, to just about the end of the record, there is some wonderful stuff on there. Uh, best song I've heard all year is called Chosen to Deserve. It's a mid-tempo rocker that, you know, gives a whiff of no depression era bands like the Jayhawks and, you know, obviously uh, Uncle Tupelo. Uh, Lovely pedal steel flourishes uh, juxtaposed against a simple, crunchy guitar riff. Uh, It gives everything a dreamy and, again, uh, nostalgic feel. And uh, she's an interesting case because she's basically, this is a song sung to a new uh, love interest or new uh, boyfriend about, here's all the stuff I've been through. And the chorus is, I'm the girl that you were chosen to deserve. Uh, and so uh, really kind of compelling. And again, I think it's just a really great song. It rocks. It actually has a hook and, and good melodies. 
and that's uh, that's the middle of the record. So uh, that to me is a highlight. Another uh, highlight I would say is a song called Formula One, which is uh, also in the middle of the record. It's a little bit slower and stretchier, uh, almost has like a coding uh, stretch quality to it. If there's such a thing as screwed and chop- chopped in the in the rock and roll world, maybe uh, it's something like this. And it has this, uh, again, really kind of quirky lyrics. And it's her fascination with birds that have a tendency to run into a window every day and never die, but then come back and do it again. Nowhere near as good as Boat Songs by MJ Letterman, which is one of the quirkier albums of the last decade, uh, odes to his father's love for Dan Marino and an ode to an empathy for wrestlers that get thrown off the top of steel cages. Uh, really quirky stuff. Not as good as that, but this is a record that's worth checking out. Again, for the four or five standouts, sure. Uh, for the other songs, like I said, this is a song, it kind of, this album, it, it combines alt-country grunge and noise core. Uh, if that sounds like a, a, a an unusual mix, it is. But the songs that veer more towards noise core, eh, no. Uh, the stuff that doesn't, awesome. So that's what I have to say about Rat Saw God by Wednesday. Art. Yeah, rat shit got awful. Uh, I'll keep <laughs> I'll keep this short. This album sucks. Um, I'll give them credit for having a cool sound. I'm admittedly a sucker for anything that aspires to 1990s style alternative rock. The problem is, where are the songs? There are uh, no songs. Tracks four through eight. That's where the songs there are. There aren't songs, dude. There isn't a single memorable or engaging melody, hook, chorus, or riff on the whole album, your favorite song on the album, there's a pretty good riff in the chorus there. I'll give you that, but nothing else. I mean, it's exacerbated. And this whole thing, and that, that, that nothingness, the nothingness, the, the no songwriting, it's exacerbated by the fact that the lead singer absolutely sucks with her. But but it's it's purposefully bad singing. Yeah. But, but yeah, but it's, purposefully bad singing. You can pull it off if there's character in the voice. She doesn't have that character. There's not an ounce of character or anything that's compelling about her weak voice. Oh, bullshit. Um, uh, I, I think it's really compelling. The, no, only times it, it, the only times it doesn't work is when they allow the guitar tapestry to overwhelm her vocals, which happens two or three times. Yeah, that That's one complaint about the production. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Letterman had a hand in co-producing because yeah. that was one of the things that killed his record from being the best album of last year. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the, so, the, 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 but this, this album just plods and plods and plods and plods into oblivion. Talk well, it about certainly band. does in the, it, it does it does in the first eleven minutes, and then <laughs> it mean, rocks out, and no, then it gets, and then rocks. and then it has kind of a tepid uh, end. So that's Rock what I would my say. Ass. This whole album is one gigantic tepid shit sandwich. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock.
Well, folks, uh, this is exciting. Uh, we have uh, renowned author uh, Tony Fletcher as a guest uh, with us today, a uh, longtime uh, music journalist and, and rock critic who uh, these days lives in New York, originally uh, from Britain. Uh, he has written, uh, among others, uh, biographies of uh, The Smiths, uh, Keith Moon, uh, Eddie Floyd, which is an autobiography, and Wilson Pickett. He is the host of his own podcast, One Step Beyond, which is not a music podcast. If you want to uh, learn about his adventures climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, that's your source. And of course, he is the author of a definitive volume on REM called Perfect Circle, uh, last revised in 2013. Tony, welcome. Thanks for the lovely the intro. It's great to be here. Uh, good to be on with you. Cheers. Yeah. Absolutely. So this, this will I'm be a fun. Fan, I'm a fan of your book, Tony, by the way, even though the, the book cover is not the one that you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's been through some itinerations or iterations, whichever the word is, but I, I do feel like it is the one book that, you know, I was writing the first edition in 89 and uh, the, the last edition in 2012 or something. So I do really feel that it's the full story start to finish sure and it and it also helps that you if i was counting from an uh, uh, an article right you were about 18 or 19 when uh, both the smiths and rem hit the street and you moved to new york around the time that uh the one i love was blowing up on mtv and so it's kind of like this is kind of like this is this is the band this is kind of the the, the soundtrack of your life literally so that's that's great my love for uh, for REM is uh, almost without reserve and I'm happy to happy to uh, share that with people who may need any kind of uh, convincing although I, I, in an ideal world they wouldn't yeah but uh, but since it's not an ideal world Artie, uh take us yeah. through five points why uh, why youngins should care uh, and rediscover uh, the joys of the wonderful REM yeah, before we get into what happened, to, in, uh, what made them decline in popularity, we got to talk about first what made them truly special and what made them great. Now, the first bullet point, we've set up five of these. And the first one is how unique and idiosyncratic their sound was, including their myriad of influences. Really, when they started out in the 1980s, no one sounded like them at all. When they started, uh, I remember uh, there's there's been several in AllMusic.com. Stephen Thomas Erlewine uh, uh, said about REM that they were REM marked the moment when post punk became alternative rock. Yeah, and, Tom Erlewine's uh, one of my favorite critics, and, and so that's and, a great line. Yeah, and he was right. Yeah. I mean, they started mm-hmm. out as Birdsian mid 1960s jangle pop with a punky new wave beat. Uh, in later years. More politicized lyrics, meaning Stipe's vocals became more enunciated, meaning more power chords and heavier riffs from Buck's guitar, meaning more muscular drumming from Barry, all betraying garage rock and 1970s punk influences. Later on, more Beatles, Beach Boys, and even Richard Thompson influences shine through in their early 1990s output. And then later, grunge and glam rear their heads for their mid-90s output, grunge, a subgenre that they themselves helped influence. And then Electronica in the immediate uh, post-Bill uh, Berry, the drummer, uh, period. So, yeah, they, 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 they had a unique sound that incorporated many other sounds. Some of them echoed, echoed from the past, but repackaged and reformulated and assimilated in ways that made it 
purely REM that no one else sounded like. Uh, Tony? Yeah, I would agree. Nobody else sounds like REM. A lot of that could be put down to Michael Stipe's very, very, very distinct voice, not uh, sure. not one you confuse with too many other singers out there. Uh, yeah. But I, I yeah. give it to the band from start to finish. They, they found a unique sound with their first album, Murmur, which remains one of the great debut albums of all time. Sure. And, oh, absolutely. And uh, they... They headed off in a multitude of different directions. As you say, they, uh, their influence on the scene around them was profound. And, uh, you know, they, they also didn't mind admitting to and wearing their influences. But they, by the time they'd made that first album, they had developed their own sound, particularly in the studio, enough that they yep. uh, came out with some individuality. i got to say, by the way, while we're talking about sort of music critics and genres, it's, just, it's, it's an endless thing of mine. Uh, and I've written a, a, a book about a bunch of uh, different scenes that came through New York City. And we never tend to call things by that name at the time. These names get applied afterwards. And as somebody who grew up in the post-punk era and was intrinsically involved in it, I don't recall anybody ever calling it post-punk until years down the line. Um, I think alternative yeah. rock was more of a term and college rock was more of a term. And uh, yeah. to be fair, yeah. to be fair, I think grunge was an expression that was hit on at the time uh but you'd never you'd never have a band like an, a, a band that was an influence on other people going oh oh please 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 call us a college rock band every band worth its salt is like please don't label us you know <laughs> yeah it's kind of amazing when you think about the maturity uh, uh road that michael stipe went on he goes from being a very shy mumbly kid who's talking about a passion that's closer to christ's passion uh in french to uh crafting uh, a song suite uh, one of the best, most moving song suites about reaching your early 30s and finding your identity of anybody that ever existed. And, you know, to go from that sort of jangly lo-fi-ness to that lushness, you know, bringing in JPJ, uh, John Paul Jones to do the strings. It, it, it's it's a remarkable, remarkably uh, just rich, rich journey for sure. It, it really is. Uh, 15 albums, we should point out. And uh, I was listening to your show on In Excess where you were talking about Mud Honey, and you're like, hey, they've just made their 12th studio album. Well, REM made 15 between 1983 and 2011. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> if you'd asked a couple of the band members, they, they would have wished it would be more. Oh, yeah. And so you know, this is a prolific output. Uh, that's that's pretty much unrivaled by any band of quality outside beyond no. the 1960s. And in fact, you know, the Beatles couldn't quite get to 15, I don't believe, at the time. Uh, so, you, you know, what yeah. It's, yeah. it's a phenomenal output over essentially a 31-year oh, yeah. career. And uh, that, I think that's got to be taken into account, just the number of records. And and that it was three record contracts, you know. they were There, there was something sort of quite... quite um, tying it up in okay. a bow at the end and saying, we've seen out a record deal. Nobody owes anybody gotcha. anything yeah. for anything. And, uh, or, you know, job done. Speaking of the Beatles, Tony, I'm glad you mentioned that. The second bullet point, and it's really related to the first one because it's in the same wheelhouse, is how much they changed and evolved over the years. And what I mean by that is that all great bands have multiple phases in their careers. REM have at least five that are very distinct and different from each other. Yet at the same time, those phases are all tied together in this gloriously progressive narrative arc. You can almost tell a story 
of their careers from one album to another. Um, it's common critics speak to say, quote unquote, this band or this artist, they are the Beatles of such and such. But the striking manner in which R.E.M. changed and evolved over the years while maintaining such a high standard of output that arguably, or if not definitely, got better as they went on while amassing huge commercial hits. It really isn't out of bounds to call R.E.M. the Beatles of the American alternative rock movie. Yeah, I was right, going to say. Who, you know, that- uh, not at all. I mean, to be honest, who else would you would you put that title yeah. on? They, 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 they were like the first yeah. in many ways. They trailblazed the scene. And uh, I've talked about the prolific, be, prolificity, yeah. Yeah. which is, uh, I, I'm sure is a it word, is. but not one you want to try and say too often after after a couple of beers. And um and the and as we say, the progression and the variety and uh, yeah, that's a fascinating point about being able to sort of tell the bands. I think the best groups you can indeed tell their biography, yeah, yeah, is chronological through the albums. You don't want to be able to interchange records and, and yeah, no, you, no, you, you don't. Know, yeah, and it, it, again, it's like you know, taste of the month club uh, with them. Like you know, like I said, you know, I, I go back and forth too. Like uh, documents been my jam lately, and uh, uh, two two points uh, one. You know, they they did kind of drop an Easter egg early because you know, tack piano appears <laughs> in the middle of Reckoning, uh, which is a cool touch. And they also have the best uh, anti neo colonialism song, Non Clash <laughs> Division. Uh, my my per- my personal favorite REM song is Welcome Ooh. to the Occupation. Uh, one rocks, two just beautiful, and the the lyric on it is incredible. Anyway, uh, the third stuff. point, and this is a, this is a point that needs a bullet point that needs to be hammered home as much as possible, is their impact on and their role in helping nurture the American indie underground scene. Um, they weren't a relentless, uncompromising, confrontational, hardcore punk outfit like Black Flag. REM were much smarter and erudite and much more musically versatile. No offense to Henry Rollins and Greg Ginn. Um, They weren't as idiosyncratic or as loopy as the meat puppets. REM were more focused and driven, and they weren't as abusive toward each other either. Um, While they became intensely political later on, REM weren't as as dogmatic in their politics as the Minutemen. Uh, Stipe's impressionistic lyrics gave the band's socio-political punch uh, a deft touch, making it ambiguous and elusive enough for listeners who didn't care for or weren't listening for politics. You know, they weren't as reckless or as self-destructive as the replacements. Um, They were career-minded, but not in a blatantly commercial or shamelessly capitalist way. Uh, For as fun as the Red Hot Chili Peppers were during this time, and I love the Chili Peppers, but R.E.M. were never even remotely as dopey and as as sophomoric as them. Um, All of these aspects, in addition to the terrific songwriting and, as we said earlier, the startlingly unique sound that echoed the past without copying it, made them leaders of the American indie underground. Uh, And they became a band that every aspiring indie alternative band either wanted to be or wanted to open up for on tour. And they often did. Everybody opened for R.E.M. in the 80s. Um, And as Kurt Cobain would continually allude to in interviews with discussing them, they were the guiding light in America in the 1980s in regard to making it, quote unquote, in rock and roll and making it in the right way. Right, Tony? 
Yeah, correct on all fronts. You should probably uh, put yourself out for higher writing introductions to books. I mean, that's a pretty good <laughs> summary. You, that's, that, yeah. that, that is a pretty good summary, especially if you want to make these sort of dreaded comparisons. Uh, you know, when I, when REM were on that uh, uh, initial scene before it was really a college rock scene, they were just playing the clubs. Uh, they were the, the, the one band that didn't mind spending a Monday night, you know, playing in – some you know small town in South Carolina in a pizza bar because there were ten people would show up <laughs> and the next next time they played there there'd be twenty five and and they were having fun yeah. and doing that and they really helped create a live music scene. Uh, they you know I interestingly Peter Buck said he never really realized just how big REM were. He just thought every every town every city had a band like an REM that was the big yeah. band in town. And we just happened to be the big one in Athens. It 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 took them a while to realize yeah. they were actually creating a circuit yeah. that all these other bands yeah. then. Yeah, it was like on. yeah that the others were laggards. They were good bands, but they were laggards. Uh, one point to make about the social political thing. Uh, one of the joys of getting ready for this uh, episode is I went back and uh, the 1991 Video Music Awards. Mm. Uh, uh, they won five awards that night, and uh, he went out there and he he had uh, uh, different T-shirts. And so he would rip one off. And so it was in, in order. It was wear a condom, choice, alternative energy now, the right to vote. Uh, that shirt was pink. The other ones were white and handgun control. So And, so, and none, yeah, of, those, he, none you know, of those stances have aged at all. Well, that's actually, I'm thinking, yeah. is, is almost like a sad thing. I mean, you know, the fact that we're still talking about handgun control. And, yeah, no shit. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and too, too much of all of that. Yeah. Maybe maybe the one thing there that, that did did shift was the AIDS um, uh, epidemic, which which would have explained probably more the wear, wear a condom more than a contraceptive issue. But, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, that their ability to be political um, without being overtly political, I think my, you know Michael was able to come up and take awards for just making really cool videos and get a message across, and they they were able to do yeah. that frequently in their career. The politics yeah. is there if you want it, um, and if you don't agree with their politics, yeah. you don't really you should probably should not be listening to them yeah. because they wore that on their yeah. sleeve yeah. as well. Yeah. But they, they, you, you know, welcome to the occupation which you just referenced. I mean, you can sing along to yeah. it. You know, oh yeah, it's Beautiful not. Song. It's not. Um, yeah, I could I could name some other groups where it's like, okay, guys, I'm having problems singing along here. But it's, it's, uh, it's not, like, it's not like listening to Phil Oaks. <laughs> no, that's a great yeah. example. Actually, that's a very good example. Or, or I was going to say Ian Mackay. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't it wasn't an abrasive anyway, experience. So uh, move, moving on, hit us with more butter. Political stances. In REM's case, really, the, the next bullet point I really want to talk about what made them special is their socio-political activism and what it meant at the time, not just in the music industry, but to a whole generation of rock music fandom, uh, especially Gen X people like ourselves. Remember, this was the 1980s. This was Reagan. This was oppressive social conservatism that culturally tried to bring America back to the first half of the 20th century. This was an era of ugly jingoism and obnoxious flag waving. This was an era of shameless, conspicuous consumption, greed, and proud ignorance. With the, yeah, how you really you feel. Know, with the countercultural element in mainstream rock having long been snuffed out, the American indie alternative underground was the only place where dissent really existed. 
and I guess hip hop at the time as well. But uh, in the hands of most of these bands, and for all their other splendid virtues, this dissent was presented in the most vague and general ways. Only REM and the Minutemen and in this era produced clear, straightforward political statements. And by the end of the 1980s, REM were the only ones putting their money where their mouths were in regard to overt activism in issues all across the socio-political spectrum. Well, um, but they were the oh, only ones yes, that had the true. money. But hey, but they, but they I did mean, it. Others who, had, I, others who had the yes. money and more money didn't. And uh, by the early 1990s, yeah. more than being just standard bearers of socially conscious rock in America, they were the socio-political conscience of American rock, period. Really, <laughs> yeah. I want to actually jump on that and say yeah, I, I appreciate you. You you probably feel you're describing the USA in the '80s that way, but it was similar in the UK with Thatcherism, and it had a lot to do with why yeah. why I I left the UK. Uh, she got elected for a third time, and it was just too much. Right. And I had gotten involved. Uh, basically, my path to moving to New York was sort of set by then. I'd gotten involved with a with a band out of Boston. Mm. And they came over and lived in the UK for a while, and I had come to see them, and I fell in love with New York City, which I, which fortunately was free of the worst elements of what you're talking about. Despite the fact, of course, Wall Street is, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, is, is yeah, I read smack bang in the middle of Manhattan, but I didn't really have to interact with Wall Street. Anyway, the point being that this particular band were REM's generation. They were college kids that were uh, a couple of years older than me and were actually pretty much REM's age and were massive fans, but equally were, were reaching different points of sort of potentially dropping off. But they were, they, I think that their own politics was sort of infused by REM starting to have politics themselves. And it provoked with yeah. me, because I grew up in a, in a much more... Um, left-wing environment it provoked with me lots of interesting conversations about the u.s's involvement in the in central america and about uh you know we were having back and forth with uh, you know uh, uh, about the smiths and how morrissey's lyrics could represent a, a culture that that these these americans found hard to understand but then they also were being exposed to billy bragg singing Help Save the Youth of America. And we were having like <laughs> lots of good yep. conversations and REM were very central. Now, I'm also going to throw it just quickly. This, this, this group of lovely people uh, uh, couldn't believe that I didn't know more about the replacements. They were like, you know, that's the real band. You know, like, like REM have been too big <laughs> for too long. The, the, the replacements are the real band. But, you know, the replacements just could not address social, no. political uh Concerns. It wasn't in Paul Westerberg yeah. with his songwriting. So, uh, although I am forever grateful uh, to my friends from Three Colors for turning me on to the to the replacements at a point that the British hadn't really yeah. discovered them, REM had the message. They had the lyrics, and those were lyrics you could you could run with. And yet, as we found later on, they could still do love songs and personal songs and cover versions and all. And of they it. did yeah. great covers too. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, great covers, and it's funny you mentioned the replacements. Hey, Art, maybe we can get Bob Muir on here. I read his book. Too. It's a great book. On that note, uh, yes. you have a fifth point this there, is don't you, The Arturo? big picture, where they are in the context of American rock music history. Um, okay, here's a list of bands slash artists whose music was or has been directly influenced by REM in obvious ways, or have. Ex- Explicitly, explicitly name check them yeah. 
as an inspiration or influence. Okay, let's first start with the minor scale, you know, the the, the, the second level bands. Toad the Wet Sprocket, The Gin Blossoms, Hootie and the Blowfish, Collective Soul, Local H, who, according to their Twitter account, named their band by combining the names of two REM songs, Odd Fellows, Local 151, <laughs> and Swan Swan H. Next, The Cranberries, Live, Counting Crows, Built to Spill, Mercury Rev, and The Decemberists. Now, on a major scale, on a major oh, yeah. scale, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. Don't believe me? Check out those slightly off Lane Staley, Jerry Cantrell vocal harmonies and tell me they weren't influenced by those of Michael Stipe and Mike Mills. Radiohead. Yeah. Radiohead. The Pixies. Black Francis once mentioned how Murmur was a direct influence on his songwriting style. Pavement. Liz Fair. Yeah. Stone Temple Pilots, particularly their expansive post-grunge period. The Flaming Lips, early Flaming Lips, Oasis, Coldplay. It's just really mind-boggling how many bands and artists, big names, yeah. have all either copied REM or were directly influenced by them or just like explicitly acknowledged them. Yeah, and there's probably some young bands now that are influenced by REM but have no friggin' idea. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that that, 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 that's how part of the DNA there. Yeah, but I, I actually you know? love that part of influences that, that you often don't know that uh, you're like, um, you know, you're listening to one band that's influenced by another. So you might be a fan of, you know, Joe Strummer, not realizing that Joe's got it from Woody. Or indeed, you might be a yeah. fan of Bob Dylan, not knowing that Bob Dylan got it from Woody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And- it's one of my favorite one of my favorite lines on this podcast. If 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 you haven't heard it, yes, you have. Right, right. I mean, a cynic, yeah. a cynic, Arturo might might say, uh, you know, it would it would have been better if REM hadn't influenced half of those bands because uh, that was an interesting list. You managed to write, run off a bunch, especially of the, especially the minor scale ones. Yeah, those a lot of those bands aren't very good. I know. <laughs> Right, but right at right at the end, right at the end, you hit on it, and I mean, f- funny enough, you put them into uh, two the two different categories. But Mercury Rev, um, uh, they they live in my town in Kingston, New oh, York, really? and Grasshopper. Oh, nice. Grasshopper did a lovely event um, that I did at, at, at about ten years back, where I did a talk about REM and the Smiths and what they had in common. And he got together with another friend of mine, and they played some REM and Smith songs nice. uh, together. And yeah. I know, I know yeah. how much Grasshopper is influenced because he desperately wanted to do the event. I just did this 40th anniversary mm. event for Murmur, and uh, he nice. had a he had a conflict, um, and he was really upset about it. So yeah, a lot yeah. of you know, I mean, uh, grunge grunge is not my favorite music, but you named a lot of great acts there, and I also think. You could go once you start talking about REM with a certain generation. You would find maybe a lot of female singer songwriters who oh, you might not assume it because they're playing more delicate music, but you probably start hearing it in the yeah. in the chord structures, and you just talk to them, and they're like, "Oh my god, sure. I was the biggest REM fan at college." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect modern examples would be like Brandy Carlile and mm. Angel Olsen. Sure, uh, I think that. You can you can definitely uh, name check those two. By the way, Kingston represent. I was a Westchester guy for seven All years. Right. So okay, uh, good. Yeah. Love, love, love your good. area. On this episode, we made the case as to why REM is one of the greatest American bands of all time and should be remembered in higher esteem by younger generation fans and critics. For the next episode, we're going from one Georgia musical great to another. And boy, is this one a doozy. Mr. Dynamite, 
Mr. Superbad himself, the hardest working man in show business, the godfather of soul, the architect of funk, James Brown. The man's influence and impact on both music and pop culture as a whole are incalculable. In fact, music as we know it today would not sound the same if Mr. Brown had never been born. And no, we will not shy away from the more negative and troublesome aspects of the man's personality. In fact, we welcome them because they will help us create a more well-rounded portrait of the man. Join us for the, for the first of a three-part series next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you James Brown, the super bad Mr. Dynamite of all legacies. So, Tony, uh, tell us a little bit about, I mean, you're obviously a very busy guy. Uh, you've talked about your uh, REM uh, circuit uh, schedule. Uh, what do you have going on now, and what can we expect uh, uh, out of uh, out of uh, your uh, uh, mind and uh, pen here soon? Thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about it. I recently uh, completed a second memoir that is actually a really – uh, it it's a bird's eye view of the uh, not a bird's eye sorry it's a um a fly on the wall involved i was there uh account of the early 80s scene and actually rem make a very prominent appearance uh, very late in the book mm. uh, based nice. on when i first saw nice. them in the uk i had a, i had a memoir out uh, it's actually a decade ago now it's hard to believe called boy about town that that did really well and was was greatly loved and uh and but but being how, how I like to write, it only took me to the age of 16, hence the title. And uh, this yeah. one is called Teenage <laughs> Blue and essentially only takes me up to about 20. But the idea is, uh, as well as a personal story of sort of, uh, you know, success and failure in the music business as this sort of boy about town who was doing all kinds of stuff. It's also um, it's also very much about the the way that that music scene changed in the UK from what we now call post-punk to uh, gotcha. to a very commercial synth pop oh. scene where it became awesome. very me, me, me and let's all be pop stars and drink yeah. cocktails and wear fancy suits. Yeah. Uh, separately from that... Uh, hey, yeah. hey, stop picking on Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> I think, I think well, he's talking about Bandau Ballet and Duran Duran maybe. <laughs> I I I kind of, oh. I kind of am, but there were plenty of people that oh. you know. Phil Oakey would be a great example of somebody I once saw, you know, okay. at the marquee with his lopsided haircut, with an experimental synth band. Who <laughs> only like two years later, you know, the trio looked very very different with the two girls alongside him, and 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 yet, don't you want me as one of the great pop records of all time? But I digress. Yes. Yeah, I do have actually another podcast called the Jamming Fanzine Podcast, which that was the title of my oh, own. Okay fanzine but it's really more now a podcast about fanzines and so i'm interviewing editors oh. of, of of fanzines oh that's cool. um so i'm happy to tip that off and you know separately from that i there may be a pause for another book because i actually at the age of uh you know i'm up there was almost with with the rem guys um i decided to finally go and get a degree because I, nice. I just jumped out of school All right. at age 16. So I just came off this mad first semester where uh, I took on way, t way too much. But uh, I had a, a, a fascinating time. And one of the courses I took was world music across cultures. Oh, nice. And having, oh, having nice. traveled, I've got to tell you, it was so lovely to be writing about literally 
the music of the pygmies um, or Tibetan ritual nice. music, wow. but also also about the influence, the impact, what is it, is I called it, the impact and the influence of the Hawaiian steel guitar, oh. which is essentially, wow. you know, the blues guitar. Yeah. And there's a fascinating yeah, okay. so, so, story so you, there. Yeah, you win the cool competition uh, for, uh, for this Yeah, week. so I've it's been having awesome. a lot of fun with that. And I've, I, it actually has rekindled um, what, what, what's never really disappeared. But from a book perspective, it's a little hard to come up with the perfect, you know, biography when they've all been yeah. written. And to find myself like digging deep and, and employing what I think are natural research tendencies, skills, whatever you want to attributes that I have and applying that to areas of that I knew very little about has been really rewarding and has kind of like energized me in many, many ways. And so uh, although I'm juggling a lot right now, I think that that's a really, you know, a really good thing for me. Awesome. That, 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 that sounds like a full thing. Uh, somewhere in there, you mentioned the, uh, the, the pings and the pangs between successes and failures. Mm. Uh, Arturo, we have some pings and pangs of success and failure to get yeah. into here now. Uh, REM had an awesome streak. Uh, they were one of the house bands of MTV for about five years. Uh, RIP M- MTV News, by the way. Uh, so yeah, what the what hell happened? happened? I mean, there, I, I came up with a couple of theories, uh, five theories. I don't know if they're correct or not, but I think they may be close to it. The first one is the changing mainstream rock tastes from the mid-1990s onward, at least in America. Uh, it got heavier, yeah. gnarlier, more shouty. You know, you had, uh, you had the, the emergence of rap metal slash new metal. Then you had uh, emo punk. Then you had in the early, 90, early 90s, you had the, the, the garage rock revival, heavier stomping rock, you know. So REM's kind of like smart, intelligent, reflective, expansive rock really kind of like became out of fashion it seemed like uh and it's, I mean, I think yeah and, and, yeah, and maybe the record radio everything got heavier 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 i mean i get personally i blame hoodie <laughs> and the blowfish <laughs> yeah 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 they, they they took rem's spot there was only one spot left and hoodie took it there for a couple years yeah. so there you go what do you think tony what, what do you say tony well, yeah, that's a very good point to hit on. And you also, uh, a, a lot of people sort of jumped over and embraced uh, the electronic music scene in the mid-90s as right. well. And I, actually, I recently sat through the three-part Woodstock 99 mm. documentary. Um, oh, yeah. I, 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 I lived it. That's a story for another day, but I lived Woodstock 99, unfortunately. Yeah, well, the, you know, I think what, but it highlights your point that by the end of the 90s, the big bands were, but uh, bands I've never had any truck for and would like to believe if I was 19 at the time, I still wouldn't have liked, you know, uh, Incubus and Linkin Park and uh, I, I want to distinguish maybe a Rage Against the Machine because we get back to the political Limp context. Biscuit, Corn, uh, Kid Rock. Limbus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, corn, yeah. that's the group I was thinking of. It was corn who were at Woodstock '99, right? Was they all were. <laughs> yeah. Both there. yeah, yeah, yeah. They pretty much all were. Although Kid Rock set was pretty good, I, uh, but the rest of it, yeah, uh, I think the, the scene. You're right. The scene changed. I, um, you know, I'd had a lot of problems uh, in the early '90s, right, right when REM were at their biggest, with with grunge hitting and influencing and changing what people wanted to listen to on alternative mu- uh, music nights. At, at night but, at, but at least, you know, but at least with the grunge, definition. you can draw a line from REM to grunge. Yeah. You know, you could yeah. do that, you know? Um, yeah, the shouty stuff didn't help them. Uh, you know, ch- tastes <laughs> do change. And uh, I think it's fair to say there's no expectation anybody should ever have to be in fashion all the sure. time. 
you know, the fact that there may be yeah. one superstar who never went out of fashion, one film star, one, you know, that that 100%, those are the exceptions that prove the rule. Right. You, you're going to yeah. have a period of just not being in fashion. It's like expecting every sports star to be on their game sure. every game. Sure. It doesn't. It doesn't yeah. work that way. They have. They have their fallow periods, no. and they have their injuries. And you know, REM yes, had a yes, bit of both. Do. Yeah. I mean, I've got some other yep. theories, but it sounds like you've got more than one. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, may, maybe yours and mine will dovetail. Um, the second one is, I guess, the sharp decline in quality of their latter period albums. Meaning, i.e., they never had a quote-unquote comeback record a la U2 in 2000 with All That You Can't Leave Behind or Green Day in 04 with uh, American Idiot. They never had that kind of a, or even, I guess maybe even the Chili Peppers with Californication. Well, I mean, to be fair, to be fair, they did, but nobody <laughs> cared. Uh, that that was the difference, like 2008, uh, 2008 or 09, whatever yeah. that record was. Yeah, that, that was a fantastic record, but by then yeah. it was like... About secular, yeah, yeah, it is, it is a yeah. fantastic record. And and I think you are right uh, with, what you're, with what you're getting at there. Uh, maybe it comes back to them being prolific. They didn't take necessarily the time off. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting point, not having the comeback record. I don't think they ever felt the need to reinvent themselves to such an extent that... They did uh, a U2 with Octung Baby, which I, I would, would say is singularly uh, the greatest reinvention of any band sure. ever to go from being uh, admittedly globally successful, but a joke and recognizing that you're a joke and reinventing yourself and actually coming out cool. I mean, you know, that is, whew, that's hard to do. And they, they, that you two get, get full credit for pulling that one off. Yeah, I think, you know. You two, um, sorry, let's get the right band's name. REM's audience aged with them, and the band mellowed. And and uh, you know, one point I have to make right now. I don't know where, you know where your listening figures are spread out, and I know Arturo, you're in South Korea, but uh, towards the end of the band's REM's career, as their sales literally fell off a cliff in America. I mean, I I I have printed mm-hmm. them out somewhere. It was it was just crazy how they fell off a cliff. And yet around the rest of the world, they were still growing right. in popularity. So they were still yeah. chalking up with something like Reveal, several million album sales, many millions of album sales. They just weren't in America. Yeah. So it's an interesting yeah. point that I think has to be factored in. Their, their American audience eventually gave up on them with new albums, still went to see them. Uh, the rest of the world was yeah. still kind of playing catch up. Yeah. You want to hear a crazy stat, mm. Tony, uh, from Spotify, uh, uh, imit- uh, what, what's it called? Uh, uh, an imitation of yeah. life. That's a song. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. That's uh, from reveal 52 million plays on Spotify, wow. orange crush 47 million. That's crazy to me. It is. It is. And uh, by the way, uh, just two, three weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now, Losing My Religion hit a billion. It got to that, uh, you know, and, yes. and that's that's clearly the one that people play. I I try not to put too much truck in, in Spotify yeah. stats because, you know, who's listening? What are, like, what, what are the algorithms doing? Blah, blah, blah. But I... Uh, I think that's you know it 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 it's a point that those later songs they were big on uh, you know there's as Coldplay have proved you know the the audience for that kind of mid tempo ballady rock is un hmm. 
limited, at least among white people. Right. Yeah, the, it, the it question is, why yeah, weren't REM yes. forgiven for not having that quote-unquote comeback record? Countless artists have not have never had a comeback record, and they're still like remembered more fondly than REM. That I don't understand. Well, uh, all right. It's not something I've, I've, I've lost sleep over in the past, but what I would say to that is... By the time they made Accelerate, they already knew they were making two more albums and calling it a day. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay. so they made Accelerate uh, as a as a mere culpa, as a. I, I mean, literally in my book, um, yeah, I sat with Peter Buck after the breakup, yeah. and he said, you know, we were so disappointed with Around the Sun that we did sit there and say, you know, it, is this it? We've 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 got to call it a day. I mean, I mean, you, you know, we don't have it anymore. Uh, I, they they placed a lot of blame on the production, and I think that's correct. But they said, no, we're not going to do that. There's no way we're going out on a low. We're going to go out on a high. And they made a the decision yep. then, an internal decision. We're going to do two more albums. We're going to see out our contract, and we're going to call it a day. And they didn't tell anyone, and they pulled that off as a secret. But I think that might explain why their comeback was not... Uktung Baby, which is like, you know, a massive statement. Yeah. It was garage rock. This is our reckoning all over yes. again. Yeah. And um, and then their final album was almost like a pastiche or a greatest hits yeah. covered <laughs> tribute band of REM. Yeah. And then it was Sia. So there was only one tour for them to do that comeback and, yeah. and be that kind uh, of band. Uh, yeah, that's very good color, Tony. Uh, thank you for uh, for yeah. thank you for providing that. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Art, very, you got any other crazy theories here? Overexposure. Were they just overexposed too much in the early night, early to mid nineties? I mean, what, what? well, so was you yeah. too. So was Metallica. So was you know. Yeah. So was Oasis. Although Oasis did, yeah, they fell of off a cliff too. But right. well, but well, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if you're. If you're if you're getting at the point I would want to make, and I'm just going to jump in Go with it here because I think it's the right the right point the right time to make it. Um, REM, as we've already uh, cited uh, several times over, were leaders. Um, they were influences on other people. Yeah. Uh, they were they they didn't mind admitting and love talking about their own influences, but they were leaders. They were unique. And they sort of set the path, both um, it, both like in terms of a music business and an alternative yeah. scene, and creative creatively. And uh, because they'd had so much success without of time, not not touring that album, they stayed home and made automatic for the people and got even bigger. And so they didn't tour that one. And then for whatever reasons, and I understand it. Those those are very laid back records, basically almost automatic for the people is almost acoustic and they said time to make a rock record again but you know what now that we're superstars let's make a big rock record so they made monster cue the ironic album title and although monster is actually way more left field than it might seem with that title and the period it is still their attempt at the big rock statement and having taken three four maybe even best part of five years off the road they were like, "Hey, we can do stadiums as well. We we are a big rock band. Let's let's go out and do this. Let's let's have our fun." And um, I felt that all of a sudden, this band was now um, uh, behind the curve. They were they they yeah. were they were calculating something. 
uh, with yeah, Monster. they were kind of facsimiles of themselves. Yeah, and they yeah. set off on this like, right, okay, we're going to do the big tour with all the little, all, not the little, sorry, all the big things you will need on a stage to to make this tour work. And Michael, in particular, Michael Stipe, was very comfortable by that point with his role as a sort of, uh, you know, a, a rock, uh, rock leader. Yeah. Yeah, statesman, you know, not, not an elder statesman, but a rock star. However, um, you know, I felt that was the first time I felt I was losing my band. And uh, with it came uh, just their, their, their good luck ran out and they had a lot of illnesses and a lot of problems on that tour. Sure. And, and yeah. it resulted in the tour being postponed a couple of times. And, of course, Bill Berry's aneurysm on stage in Switzerland <laughs> and um his very near survival and not surprisingly yeah. after seeing through the tour and finishing making the next album part of which had been sort of woodshedded on tour bill left and so your argument yeah. there is you know they wrote it for nine albums and then their sort of luck ran out uh you know what could have befallen and has befallen other bands earlier they all got to live but but there were there were some serious problems uh the tour was Obviously, yeah. seen as a bit of a disaster, and they, they, and particularly with Bill leaving, they were never able to get their mojo back. Yeah, you want to hear the punchline on this, yeah, Tony? Go. So, uh, about a month ago, uh, some guy on YouTube had Mike Mills mm. and Michael Stipe on as guests, and I guess the question came up: What's your favorite REM album? Uh, what was Stipe's answer? New Adventures mm. in Hi-Fi. Close second, mm. Reveal. Fascinating. So. Yeah, which is just interesting. Just sort of, like, I guess it was just sort of what living through the Mills experience. And maybe just sort of the. Uh, no one cares. Mills, <laughs> they he, they did they didn't get him, but no, but but Mills was talking up uh, new adventures in hi fi. Well, he, like he talked about how exciting the process was of just sort of uh, in and out of studios or sound checks or just kind of like the uh, the band on the run, mm-hmm. literally. Uh, you know, recording as I think, went. I think uh, bands have a right to say, Hey, you know, it, you may not have loved it to the same extent we did, but we are proud of this one day. Yeah. One day you'll know we were right. Uh, I think it's yes. fine for bands to do that, but you know, there may be a little bit of the disconnect by them between what they were getting a kick out of doing and what uh, people wanted yeah. to hear in, in big numbers, right. in big numbers. Right. And I, I, I also think the diaspora too mattered too. That was that was around the time that uh, Stipe settled in L.A. and Buck moved up to the Pacific yeah. Northwest as well. And so they they weren't like four guys yeah. in a van anymore. Right. All so, right. So right. the fourth the fourth point, and this is kind of the elephant in the room. And uh, I don't, I'm I'm not saying this is definitely the case, but I kind of smell it a little bit. And it's Michael Stipe's sexuality in a time of macho aggressive mook rock. By the mid-90s, Stipe never like came out in a big way, but he didn't really hide it anymore that he was gay. And mid-90s to late-90s, like I mentioned earlier, is when like the really hyper, uber-aggressive new metal slash rap metal started hitting the American rock mainstream. And all of a sudden, it seemed like there was no room for that kind of sensitive guy front man unless he was big and burly with tattoos <laughs> you know and and um uh, i think it kind of stained them for a little in 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 in, in, the, in the subconscious not not internationally but of the american music fans americans are pretty backwards about this you know yeah no, 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 I, but, I, but, I think but, that's but, fair i mean at the, at the beginning precedent go ahead this. the precedent is queen um look at queen by in 1980 they were huge in America, all over the world, 
but they were they hit their apex popularity in America after uh, after the game album with another one bites the dust and crazy little thing called love. All of a sudden, Freddie Mercury started dressing more obviously gay, hanging out in gay nightclubs. The next Queen album was a was basically an electro pop gay dance club record, you know, Hot Space. And immediately after, by 82, 83, Queen's popularity, woo, nosedived in America. And that really did coincide with Freddie Mercury being more open, um, maybe not verbally, but just in showing his sexuality more. And it turned off a lot of American hard rock music. And Queen appealed to hard rock fans at the time, you know, hard rock. You sure it wasn't the Flash Gordon thing? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, maybe. And, and and hard rock metal fans. Yeah. And it really took until Freddie Mercury's death for Americans to re-embrace Queen, you know? Um, so I really do think, um, even though now we live in a time where, um, you know, homosexuality is more accepted and, 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 and easier to live with for some music fans out there, um, I think Stipe's more overt sexuality it may have had the queen effect on REM. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but uh, well, I, I, I find I, you, you know, you articulated that very well. Um, it's 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 really interesting. You've obviously been thinking about this. I don't know that that alone would have done it. I mean, I think we've talked about the creative, uh, the creativity went a bit. They had some, you know, they had some bad luck. Yeah. Um, a, a key band member left. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of factors and I think that they, they all come together, but I, uh, yeah, I mean, it is really, really interesting. I, God, there's a lot that could be said here, but I would want to say it very, very carefully because, um, back when I wrote my first edition of, of, uh, the biography in, in 89, which does seem like, like, you know, it is years ago, uh, there were there were people that wanted me to out Michael Stipe uh-huh. because I knew yeah. I knew at that point, right. and um, I'd grown up in you know my own little uh, you know DIY post punk as as it's now known culture where I understood that it was uh, rock and roll was where the, the the freaks and the losers and the gay people and the, the everybody who didn't fit into society was you know you you gravitate to some form of the arts it's just what you do uh, unless you become a hermit so it, you know i'd always been around people that, that that i never even questioned and i knew it was not my role to put somebody in the spotlight like that uh, it fell to the british music press that really reached a bit of a nader around automatic for the people when they sort of decided on mass that Michael Stipe was singing about the fact he had AIDS, which is just, yeah. just so much BS. I yeah. mean, it was just, pathetic. but that's like the beginning of the internet too. Like the easier, isn't he? Yeah. It was really that... pathetic. I mean, all right. So, so Michael had to come yeah. out, you know, had to come out and say, I'm, I'm more or less coming out. Uh, yeah, you know, you would like to feel it certainly didn't harm the group with Automatic for the People, and it didn't with Monster. But I take your point. You know, the music world changed yes. by the late nineties, yeah. and when again yeah. going back to look at some of the horrendously, well, for me, are horrendous but horrendously popular performances of Woodstock '99. Sure. sure, REM couldn't have fitted in on that stage, but it's not just no. down. It's not just down to Michael. You also would have to allow. I've I've old enough, and I've been around enough people. By by the point that all that's going on, REM have made like like this just a band that formed for fun for a party. Yeah. I mean, they literally got together to play a you know 
well, they were playing, but it wasn't until their, their, their roommate uh, put together a party that they were like, all right, well, we'll do a gig. So you've exceeded beyond your wildest dreams. You've become superstars. Um, you're, you're very, very rich. If, if, and that, that, that has some yeah. kind of, a, of, of an influence. Like you're, you're like, what, what do I still need to prove? You know? So, so the, uh, even with the best of artists, there can be a different kind of hunger. The hunger can be more creative and like, hey, if I don't sell, well, I've yeah. made, it's not like I haven't made my money. It's not like I haven't made my mark. I just, you know, I yeah. think some of that comes into play as well so that we shouldn't feel like Michael would be sitting there licking his wounds and being like, oh, where, you know, how did I lose people? I think the Michael would be No, like, he goes off and yeah. he produces being John Malkovich. Yeah. I think Michael you know? would say I was having the time of my life. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then Peter Buck got to the point where he did Arthur Buck. There you go. Uh, with which is actually a, a a pretty fantastic record, folk disco. Yeah. You should check that out, Arthur, if you haven't heard it. But it's, right. and, and, it's pretty and, good. And the, the, my last uh, little bit about what happened, um, just the overall musical tastes of millennials and Gen Zers, like, like really. It, yeah, the social media yeah, gatekeepers. I, I mean, closed REM influenced the gate. a lot of the bands and artists that the younger generation rock fans like. Why can't they make that trip back to REM? I don't get it. Yeah, there's a disconnect. And I, I do I do think there's that social media thing of like uh, taste making officially stopped in 2005, like central uh, centralized taste making. And so when, once YouTube and Facebook and user generated content take over, now it's like the hot take of the month. And so uh, I made this point last episode, but I'll make it again, like Along December by Counting Crows. Great song. It's been deified. OK, well, you know, why hasn't like, you know, a few of like like. And like shiny, happy people, for whatever reason, has become like a, a go-to mock. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, you still get like memes and and like nasty stuff posted on them. Uh, Mike Mills's Twitter feed, by the way, is wonderful. Uh, he's he's just a nasty son of a bitch these days. He doesn't care. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah, but, I got off Twitter uh, because of uh, Elon Musk, yeah, but yeah, because yeah, of Musk. Uh, but maybe yeah. you know, I'd, I'd be happy to hear the highlights. But good, good for Mike. Good for Mike. Yeah, he, basically, he trolls conservatives all day long. <laughs> uh, it's, it's 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 really fun. Well, like he he was picking on Charlie Kirk this morning. Well, that's sort of uh, what I mean. It's like they're, they're they're like, hey, you know, maybe I I may be getting my kicks in a different way. I don't have to kind of go and you know like sleep yeah. in the van for the rest sure. of my life to enjoy yeah, what I'm doing. They, they leave the analysis of why things fell apart to us, yeah. you know, because they're, 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 they're busy living. Exactly. So uh, with that, with that said, Arturo, uh, I understand that you have put together a list and I want to run through these real quick of what you think are the 10 greatest American bands of all time. Knowing our uh, weird chemistry, I will probably disagree with like six of them, but I want to hear what Tony uh, this yeah. this will be fun. So right, lightning okay. round. Well, give before us your I go just let me, uh, let me qualify this, saying my parameters for this are not just commercial success, but overall importance, influence, and cultural impact. Okay, so that that, that all factors in here. Uh, not just like oh, they sold okay. a lot of records. Gotcha. No, how influential they were, how important they were to rock music in general. And uh, how imp in, uh, not just in their country and within the U.S., but like how they inspired you know rock music bands and fans and throughout the world as well. You know, and how in influ influence is a big thing here. But anyway, my number ten are the Birds. Okay, because uh, they pretty much kickstarted you know I mean, so many subgenres. You know, folk rock, country rock. Uh, they were one of the first ones at the gate there with psychedelic rock 
Raga rock, space rock, whatever you want to call it. You know, the birds were like for like four or five years, they were just like creating subgenres with every record. But anyway, them. Number nine, I have your favorite, Chris, Credence Clearwater Revival. Because Yeah, that's um, my number one, Tony. Uh, just so you know, right. I, I, I think it's top, top ten America. American bands, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Notice, mm-hmm. notice no solo artists, one. no Dylan, Springsteen, okay. Hendrix. Right, sure. sure I get it. Yeah, you know, yeah. the Jimi Hendrix experience. I'm sorry. If you're putting your name in front of a band's name, it's not a band. <laughs> it's a solo artist with a backing band. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no offense to Noel Redding, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I goes. have CCR nine. Cause even though they weren't from the South, they pretty much created the template for Southern rock. You know, they really did. Um, number eight, Metallica. Now it doesn't matter. Remember, I tried to be objective about this. I like Metallica. I'm not the world's biggest Metallica fan, but I do acknowledge that they were hugely important in the development of heavy metal. There's heavy metal before Metallica and there's heavy metal after Metallica. And uh, they they, they influenced the world when it it came to heavy metal. I think you got to put Metallica in there. Yeah. Any, any, any thoughts on that one, Tony? I listen, I, um, I am all for the, the rock and roll being a broad church. I did another podcast and we got talking about the rock hall of fame. Cause I'm, I'm, uh, I get, I get a vote on after, after the nominating committee, you know, I get one of those the votes okay. that doesn't really mean much. And I put my personal tastes aside. Yeah. You, you, and you say, have to. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I voted for Iron Maiden, um, right. who I never, you know, because I just saw like, why aren't they in there already? Yeah. So yeah, I've got no problem with yeah. Metallica being right. on that list at all. It doesn't matter if I listen right. to them or not. Yeah. And, and same, same thing with them. The fact that they did those first five records in eight years yeah. is astonishing. Anyway, so, number seven, yeah. talking heads. Um, I put them here, um, because they pretty much sent the, te- set up the template for what indie used to be indie rock, independent label rock music. Now indie is basically a subgenre. And uh, Talking Heads set up the template for what we know now is that, that that danceable, funky rock sound that is indie. That's Talking Heads. Talking Heads also. Yeah. The, MG, the MGMT also, like, thing, bri- you know? Bridging, yeah. uh, make, creating a bridge between rock fans, punk fans, new wave fans, and going back and listening to Afro-Cuban music and going back to the mm. sources in Africa. And uh, I mean, there, I, I'm one of those people who got into Fela Kuti through Talking Heads, you know? So Talking Heads were kind of like yep. a, a gateway band for a lot of Latin music and yeah. for a lot of rock oh. music fans to appreciate Latin and African music. Plus they set the template for indie uh, and intelligent indie. Music. Oh, go, go, gosh darn Rhode Island. Gosh darn Rhode right. Island School of Design. Anyway, you know, number six, R.E.M., okay. Like we just spoke of number five, I have Nirvana um, because post oh, Kurt Cobain's death, Nirvana's myth has taken a life of its own. Um, the, among oh, younger yeah. generation fans, like for us of our generation, our maybe I don't know about you, Tony, but like for me and Chris, the Beatles were our rock and roll gateway. Guess what? For kids now in their early twenties and teens, Nirvana. Is there rock and roll gateway? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. They, you know, especially because you know something in the way was a top, was like a number yeah. one hit like last year. Uh, so kind of amazing. I'm, I'm amazed by the way that you have REM at six. That I'm, I'm yeah, really now in number. Well, I'm trying to be objective. Number four, the Grateful Dead. Um, 
you have to, no matter what you think of jam band music, the Grateful Dead created a culture. You can't say that about many bands. They created a culture. When you think of hippies, yeah, without the, without the dead, the Stones don't get Virgin to uh, sponsor a <laughs> yeah. tour. Um, but they sure. created a culture. They, I mean, I, I am a dead fan. I admit, I do like the dead. I, I like punk. I like hippie. I don't care. Um, the 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 dead. They beyond creating creating uh, their culture, they had this musically. They actually surpassed the Birds in terms of this. Uh, this beautiful tapestry of pure American music and getting every stream of every aspect of American music you can think of beyond the jamming on stage stuff. They did that as well, if not better than anyone else. And of course, I mean, like just, they were an industry. I mean, you got to give them credit for that. You know, number three, the Stooges. Uh, I have them as number three. Yeah, yeah, the quick, Stooges, quick I mean, they, you know, they didn't invent punk rock, but they pretty much may as well have been the first American punk rock band. Yeah, and they bashed the fuck out, like, uh, pardon the French, but they bashed out, like, better than any yeah. any band uh, of, of right. its type. And they, and they yeah, I mean, they, they influenced, inspired so many bands, including some of the bands on this list that I just mentioned. Uh, number two, the yeah. Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. I have them at number two because they're kind of the prototype for the American rock and roll band. They were the American answer to the Beatles. Yeah. Um, Brian Wilson was a genius. Yeah. Pet sounds. I mean, and, and, and yeah, and and they also and they also took the duop harmony and uh, and uh, basically mainstreamed yeah. it for white America. Totally. And so uh, Wilson doesn't yeah. get enough and number for that. one. And this is maybe one that may be a little controversial for some. The Velvet Underground. No. Pavement. I, I oh, have them as the greatest, oh, gonna say most pavement. important and influential American band of all time. Because, yeah. The oh, Velvets, absolutely. Okay. Because um, w- 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 without the Velvets, there is no punk. There's no goth. There's no alternative. There's no indie. All of that you can trace to the Velvet Underground. REM you can trace to the Velvet Underground. Nirvana. You can trace it yeah, the underground. Talking heads, yeah, you can you, trace it the underground. Yeah, like, it's like everything starts with them. Just, like, they really were. Yeah, you just birthed a really good talking point, Arturo. Sort of cut you up. You birthed a really good talking point, uh, Tony. Do you see a direct line between VU and the Smiths? Um, between VU and the Smiths, yeah. I mean, I do. I, I, do. I know. Uh, yeah, I know that was one of many influences on this on the Smiths. But I mean, it was a massive, massive, massive influence on REM because you know, you only have to look at their early cover versions. Yeah. Um, Velvet Underground mm-hmm. was a way in for Michael Stipe and Peter Buck to befriend each other. Uh, that was that was yeah. something that they had in common. They didn't have like a whole bunch of music in common, but they had the Velvet Underground. You know, lists are, uh, are, are of course subjective. Sure. Um, we're not talking yes. the uh, you know the ten biggest selling records of all time, which even now is quite hard to to right. do to do uh, yeah. with, with authority. So what Dreaming. I think you yeah. can, um, I think if you take out the greatest. And you sort of say the most influential and would you say impactful? I might not argue with your list, except I was wondering, like as you went on, like were you really going to put the Ramones at number three, two, or one? So you know, I think that the I think <laughs> that the Ramones deserve a yeah. place on that list. The the greatest thing is entirely subjective. Uh, I I have often come into these kind of discussions by saying that REM are for me. Uh, in many, many, many ways, the greatest band, period. 
And mm. there are many reasons that I say that, but, and we've touched on most of them, but not all of them on this show. Um, and, and I still want to kind of maybe dive in a bit more to why they're not respected, to, to what extent they're respected right now and whether it should be more. But the reason I say that is for a lot of reasons that we've touched on, the the you know the the the, the number of great albums you sure. know just just the 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 sheer breadth well the sheer number of great albums the breadth of the great albums the influence and impact that they had and while we have certainly touched on the politics um, I don't think we've touched on an aspect about how they ran their business yeah. and I have been around uh, rock and roll since I was thirteen uh, all kinds of music and I've seen the good the bad and the ugly. And uh, yeah. REM, all the way through, managed to maintain a way of doing business that was honorable and decent. Um, they were, uh, you know, as far as I could tell, uh, in, in any interactions with them or management, they were, they were uh, friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, yep. they, you know, they, they, you can call it just like good old Southern sort of, you know, manners. They, they, they did not subscribe to the notion that you had to be nasty to get on in the music business and, and yeah. we, they don't get enough credit for that. Now there, there have been one or two battles they fought and they will close ranks if somebody tries to, 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 to wedge that, you know, get in on them mm. or, or if somebody does piss them off, they they are they have an ability to close ranks. They they've also been run very well as a business. But there was a sort of positivity and a down to earth aspect about them. I mean, Michael Stipe at some of the peak of his fame, you'd run into him in like the dive bars of New York City. Uh, the week that Automatic for the People came out, um, I needed to interview Peter for a, actually for an update, and he chose the most obviously grungy. Mexican restaurant on the Lower East Side, and <laughs> and you know um, these they they were very comfortable with that. They were very comfortable with with how they were. They they had a habit of always looking at the guest list, like it literally got handed yeah. to them along with like a set list, so that they knew who was showing up that night. And so they could actually look mm-hmm. for their friends. There aren't many bands who bother with that anymore. It's like you know the manager might have put somebody on the guest list, but but the band wanted to know who's coming tonight. We want to be able to say hello to yeah. them. They came out to their own meet and greet after shows, you know, at, at the top of That's their fame. Cool. So there are many reasons that I call them the greatest. And I want to get back to the point that they split up, split up after 15 albums and we didn't make this final point. They did so as friends. Yeah. You don't get and that there often. Is no, yeah. Well, you need to name me another group that went 15 albums, three record contracts deep, saw out their record contracts, um made you know let's allow like 10 to a dozen superb albums along that that run uh which what not 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 jefferson airplane <laughs> right <laughs> you know there's no and, and and still had three quarters of the band members intact and don't you know let's allow 10 years 12 years down the line from breaking up when there was a 40th anniversary concert tribute concert for chronic town last um yeah. whatever last fall all four members showed up and were That's were great. photographed hanging together watching the show. Nice. So again, you're not going to get that from anybody else. So for me, uh, I may have a different favorite band uh, on a different day of the week, but they are my ideal of what a band could and sh- and should be. Sure. And to borrow a word that you used on another podcast recently, uh, impeccable. Mm. And and Just you're not impeccable. the only one, Tony. Uh, there's a guy out there called a uh, Peter Tabacus 
who's also a, a music writer. And he wrote for uh, several years ago uh, for a website called Spectrum Culture. And he basically the title of his article, the best band ever, REM. So you're not alone. Right. And, and he didn't put a question mark. No on question it, mark. Good. No, he did not. He 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 was very uh, he was very uh, commanding in making that they, assertion. And there are those people. They out are there. my idea. You know, we all have our favorites. Yeah, they are my. You know, I'll 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 go balls to the wall for CCR. Right. But I also have REM at number oh, wow. two. By the right. way, uh, would I, my I wanted to just uh, like throw out. I know. Oh, I know ahead. we're almost we're yeah. almost done. But I sort of seen that the premise of of uh, what we were going to talk about. And I'm kind of glad we we haven't. Uh, given over the whole episode to this is, you know, why they're not respected so much by Gen Z and millennials. And, you know, what, you know, like what's wrong, either what's wrong with the kids or why do REM not get their chops where maybe Nirvana and Pixies still do. And without literally asking that question, you, you've hit on a lot of very, very uh, good points, but I, I actually decided in preparation for this to, um, to, to pose that kind of question um, online. And I got, you know, it's interesting. I got, a, I mean, I'm, I'm actually going to quote, it was maybe it was you, uh, Achiro, maybe you, Chris, but you literally had on your show notes, most younger generation rock music fans, particularly millennials and Gen Z people have either completely forgotten REM or just outright dislike them. Now, admittedly, the people that I'm around on Facebook are more like my age, but then again, many of us have kids. <laughs> yeah. And there was a there was a real uh, breadth and and variety of replies. I want you to know that that uh, you know uh, awesome. some people. I mean, I literally had a couple of um, you know a couple of people came out and said uh, the uh, uh, when they um, got into them, you know, when they got into them, it was. Uh, so let me just read you this one. I think this this is helpful. Now, the, admittedly, this person's on a on a music site, but he says, "I'm an early millennial who's loved them a long time with mates who are the same. Part of the way in was via Pavement, uh-huh. who you know were influenced by yeah. REM." But the statement is Good pretty point. true. Peers who are casual listeners probably think of them as remember the '90s video special material, while plenty of keen <laughs> music types rubbish them in the same way as Pixies and Nick Cave, like too obvious, soft, shallow. And he does put it, you know, what a way to live. Um, I see. I didn't think Pixies and Nick Cave were considered, you know, unhip like that. I I thought thought Pixies were considered super hip by the kids. I guess I'm out of touch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but by the kids, Nick Cave, uh, no, but I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, I mean, I got somebody else. I was born in 1980 and caught the tail end of their commercial peak. At the time, I guess I thought of them as slightly bloated Q magazine middle-aged man fodder, which I think, by the way, (laughs) is 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 fair, uh, fair of him to say that one stupid stage yep. prop and a meeting with a Pope away from becoming you too. Um, although, although <laughs> they were friends with and were admired by Kurt Cobain, I never really detected their influence on Nirvana who were, who were more indebted to Pixies and Mudhoney. I later discovered yeah. the IRS albums murmur through to document and think they're largely great. Great. Given that they were nearly everywhere for much of the nineties, no bands really cite them as a key influence now, nor do you ever hear a song and think, Oh, they've been listening to a lot of REM. Um, and he ends up by saying, for all their ubiquity, they've left comparatively little trace. I think we have in this show sort of demonstrated that they, they've left an enormous trace, even if it's not o- overt. Yeah. Um, but, they, but you know, I had people saying, hey, my kids love them. And I had people saying, I work with millennials and they've got no idea who REM are. Um, and, you know, if it helps, I and it may not help, but um, I uh, work with and direct shows with the Rock Academy here where I have enormous fun. And oh, nice. 
really interestingly, I uh, we do a lot of different music, and I was meant to be doing the Doors this summer, and it got pulled because kids weren't signing up. And I would have said ten wow. years ago they would have signed up for the Doors. I mean, the Doors were one of these groups that you go through your Jimi Hendrix period, yeah. your Nirvana period, yeah. your Doors period. period. Yeah. So. No more doors. So apparently, periods, huh? no more doors. Period. And uh, this is maybe not. Uh, it was not a representative sample, but I was in there with the boss, and and I said, REM, you know, I keep pitching you REM because we needed to do something uh, this particular yeah. show that wasn't too complicated musically. Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, you know, like okay, let's let's think about it. And he came back uh, later and said, we we sort of did a pop poll of the kids who are taking lessons here now, and people are in the room and. None of them have heard of REM, so it's it's not going to be REM. It's, it's, it's not but, like they don't like REM. They, they don't even know them. <laughs> I think that that is. Yeah. I think that's partly it. You you actually it's, it, it surprises me. You know, sometimes to know what the what the kids are into. You put up a show and they all sign up for it. Yeah. You know, they 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 all signed up for, yeah. for Fleetwood Mac. You know, what are you going to do? Well, TikTok. But hey, I mean, well, there's TikTok there's worse things. Has a lot to I mean, do with, you the, know. with the Fleetwood Mac resurgence. You know. Yeah, with the whole dreams thing. Hey, social media—it's—it's it's a strange place, but it does wonderful things, like uh, giving Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. Their well, I also uh, want to say so- there's a very final point I Go want ahead. to say. It's in, yeah, so I have yes. written a book on REM and on uh, uh, other acts. I—that I, final update I did was—was was, um, it was too soon after. I should have just told my editor, you know what, the band broke up for a reason. Let's wait two years and and do an update. So we did the update, and and that one with the three of them on the cover sort of, you know, slipped out. But fortunately, a couple of years later, a few years later, I got to say, I think they were running out of copies. Finally, I said, can we please change the cover? And then I just want to go to bed happy. It was never a hardback, but this book's been a great success. People have loved it. The band were were impressed by it. Um, Absolutely. And we've done that. And then I will say to you, in the last three to four, maybe as much as five years, the book has started selling again in quite considerable numbers. I will. And oh, that, of late, fantastic. of late, outselling the Keith Moon book. And I mean, I could, I could get on my my high horse and say, yeah, that's maybe because there's nobody left to buy the Keith Moon book because uh, it sold a lot. <laughs> but I've been really quite impressed. And similarly, when I did this 40th anniversary event for Murmur here uh, in a town called Sorgates, a lot of people showed up. And that was partly because radio wanted to interview me about Mm. it. The NPR station did. So my sense is that REM's influence is still noted. The older generation are aware of it and people are discovering the band. I mean, somebody's got to be buying these books. And interestingly, a number of the sales are in America. So there you go, folks. Maybe REM isn't as uh, dead in the water as we thought, and there is very much hope for the world. Thank you so much, Tony Fletcher, for bringing that little slice of that dialectic into uh, our episode and our revisitation of REM. And thank you, Tony, so much for joining us for this episode. We really, really appreciate your interest and your passion, and uh, we're very much uh, excited about bringing your perspective onto this episode of the Curmudgeon Rock. As we always end these episodes with, folks, uh, check us out uh, and join the Curmudgeon League community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Curmudgeon Rock. If you have anything to say about this episode or have your own view on REM, uh, catch us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And uh, for now, we're still on Twitter, although our presence is dwindling as it becomes a new check dystopia. Uh, we're there at, at Curmudgeon Pod. We mentioned Mike Mills' feed. Uh, we love it. You should check that out uh, as well. 
Uh, take care, folks, and we'll see you next time when we'll start talking about Mr. Dynamite himself, James Brown.